Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the week in news and the most pressing industry issues. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. This episode of the podcast is being recorded using video conferencing technology, so everybody is at a very safe distance from each other. This podcast looks at the opportunities in emerging market assets in the world in which we now find ourselves. Emerging markets may be at the forefront of many of the changes driving the global economy, from Asian technology to African consumers, but the markets generally perform poorly when the dollar is rising in value and uncertainty grips the globe. Joining me today to try and untangle all of that are Andrew Ness, manager of the Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust, James Dowie, Global Equity Fund Manager at the Lion Trust, and Hugh Gimber, Market Strategist at JP Morgan. Uh, thank you all for, for joining me today. A feature of the aftermath of the global financial crisis was that demand from emerging markets helped lift the rest of the world. As we eventually come out of the COVID-19 crisis, can we expect the same thing to happen again, uh, Hugh? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think demand from emerging markets will help once we're through the, the coronavirus crisis, but probably not to the same extent that we saw in the aftermath of the GFC. First of all, I'd say that the pace of recovery across emerging markets is going to look very different. So clearly we have uh, the, the leaders so far in terms of China and South Korea, for example, but other emerging markets warrant particular caution, I think, in the cases of India and Singapore, for example. Secondly, I think the shape of demand today from emerging markets looks quite different to a decade ago. So clearly, many emerging markets are moving towards more of a consumption and services-based model, and that will impact the demand for different products. And finally, I would say that, frankly, demand wasn't particularly strong from emerging markets before we saw the outbreak of the coronavirus. So looking at Eurozone exports, for example, we'd already started to see those slow down quite significantly from around the middle of 2018. So I don't think it's really fair to assume that we're about to bounce back to a much more uh, robust demand picture anytime soon. Thank you. Uh, James, as a, as a global uh, equity manager, obviously you, you can if you wish um, allocate two emerging market equities. Technology is something that, that is often highlighted down there, but are they um, are, are those markets going to uh, going to give us all a fill-up and give investment managers such as yourself a good source of returns? Well, David, I think I think the big driver of the emerging market surge coming out of the global financial crisis, you know, a decade or so ago, was um, China's gigantic Keynesian stimulus, which for a little while powered global economic growth um, along. Um, so in a way, the question is, could China do the same thing again today? Well, they're certainly much bigger now as part of the global economy. So if they did, it would provide an even bigger boost than it did then. However, unfortunately, I don't think that they will. Beijing is much more cautious today than it was then, mainly because they've been dealing with the hangover from that stimulus in the form of low quality debt ever since um, I think conversely, you know, generally speaking, and there are a lot of exceptions to this, which I'm sure you'll, you'll tease out over the podcast, David. Um, but I think the next year or two could be quite challenging for emerging markets for three basic reasons. Number one, they've got fewer resources than the developed world on the healthcare side to ultimately get the virus under control. 
Number two, they've got fewer resources than the developed world on the financial and macro policy side to support the economy and the recovery. And third, the commodities downturn, um, which could get a little bit worse if demand doesn't bounce back quickly at the global level, could make life really difficult for a lot of emerging markets over the next year or two. Um, so, I, so I'm going with a no, broadly speaking, um, in answer to your question. But that, you know, as you allude to, that is not to say that you know, emerging markets are a no-go for me at all. And, and indeed, there are a lot of interesting things going on right now. Andrew, as, a, as a, an actual fund manager down there on, on the ground every day in, in, um, in emerging markets, are, are you seeing um, signs of life from their, from their economies and from those underlying uh, companies that could, that could help the rest of us? Yeah, but certainly seeing signs of life. Um, um, I also think it's, it's not necessarily as simple as a, an emerging market versus developed market issue, um, unfortunately, David. I think all countries are going to have their own unique experience of this virus and economic recovery. It really will depend on a, a whole host of factors. You know, to begin with, the extent of the virus, it seems some parts of the globe are, are, are clearly being in the, in the short term, certainly less affected by the outbreak, uh, the duration of the lockdown, the ability of health infrastructure and policymakers to respond to the outbreak. I think demographics and behavioural risk factors will play an issue. So young populations seem less exposed. And we know that uh, emerging market economies typically have a, a higher percentage of youth in their demographic mix. Smokers seem exposed, um, those living with existing health conditions, and these can work against emerging markets and work for them. So diabetes in the developed world versus HIV in the, the developing world. I think we also need to look at the degree of financial vulnerability, um, the dependence on external demand. Some of our economies are extremely dependent on, on exports and, and demand from the rest of the world. Others are much more self-sufficient. Um, some, some countries have high degrees of exposure to more distressed sectors like tourism and oil industry. Um, some countries have significant scope for monetary and fiscal support measures. Others are, are far more constrained on that side. And then finally, the, the nature of the job market. I think it was perhaps you that mentioned this earlier, but you know, many of these economies are now increasingly consumer and service sector driven. You know, um, what percentage of service sector jobs are, are being you know, shut down in the current environment? How many can be recovered? And how much worker protection exists? And I think all of these will determine the economic impact and, and subsequent recovery um, on, of these economies. And that will vary um, both within developed markets and emerging markets and, and within emerging markets themselves. Andrew, if we uh, just continue on, on that theme that you, that you mentioned there, you mentioned the, the sort of positive demographic story in emerging markets, and that's not something that we, that we see uh, in, in the Eurozone necessarily and in many developed markets, but, but what's the best way to play those demographic trends? Is, is it still the, the much vaunted emerging market consumer? Is that, is that still the best, best way to, to approach it? Yeah, we believe so. We, we, we've, for a long time, we've, we've, we've been investing in both the consumer and technology operate opportunities um, across a number of markets. And I think they still, you know, ultimately should remain attractive areas for investors, you know, although clearly, and we have to be clear about that, the economic impact of the virus will weigh on many economies in the short term. However, the key consumer trends that we've been investing in for some time, I think these are still likely to remain relevant. You know, there's three of them that we, we discuss here. The first one, the penetration story. I still think that's a theme. There's still many parts of emerging markets that lag more developed economies in penetration of, of goods and services. Now, whether that's home ownership, it's car ownership, it could be life insurance, you know, high-speed broadband penetration, etc. Um, we still think there's long-term growth opportunities in, in many of these areas, and those opportunities will remain um, even after um, the COVID-19 outbreak. 
Um, in addition to that, in some of the more evolved consumer economies and emerging markets where there's already uh, a reasonably significant mass affluent population, um, you know, likes of China, India, you know, North Asia, for example, we'd expect still to see the ongoing premiumization trend where as these consumers have got wealthier, they like to trade up for higher quality services and brands and something no different from consumers we've seen elsewhere in the world. And again, we think that that theme is going to remain broadly intact post the virus. And then finally, um, we've seen significant growth in, in attitudes towards wellness and health and, and, and fitness. And that was growing significantly pre-crisis. And we'd obviously expect those themes to continue growth as societies reevaluate their lifestyles post the, post the viral outbreak. Uh, James, um, as, a, uh, as, as someone who, who uh, wears, I think, uh, quite a large macro hat at Lion Trust, in addition to your uh, role as uh, manager of a global equity fund, what, what do you think is the outlook for the emerging market consumer? And is it still a, a macro theme that's interesting for you? Yeah, it is, David. I think it's extremely important. Um, so our overall strategy in investing in emerging markets is to invest in the, in the future of emerging markets. And that means the consumer, it means technology, high-end industry and manufacturing and services. Um, and to generally avoid sectors such as commodities and low-end manufacturing, which we see as you know, not regressive sectors as such. I think that would be quite unfair, but certainly as stepping stones towards these higher value-add sectors. We believe very strongly that this is how emerging economies achieve better living standards over time. It's how you know, today's developed economies did it in the past, um, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, and so on. But it's also crucially, at the same time, how investors can achieve the best returns in emerging markets, in our view. You know, it's like that, that old sports analogy that you know, the best footballers, the best tennis players, and so on, you know, they, they, they get themselves where the ball is going. And I think that's very, very appropriate when it comes to you know, investing in you know, the future of emerging markets. Hugh, as a, as a market um, strategist, you look at a lot of uh, long-term trends and, and themes. Is the uh, trend of uh, emerging market consumption, is that still as strong as it was when I came into this industry 150 years ago or whatever it was? <laughs> I, I think it is personally. And I think the index composition also tells you something about this. So if you look 10 years ago, emerging market indexes um, across energy, materials and industrials were over a third, those three sectors making up just under 40% of um, the total emerging markets index. Today, they've shrunk to less than half of that weight, whereas consumer discretionary has more than doubled in its weight. So clearly, the, the greater importance of the emerging consumer is playing out in the index composition as well. The one point I'd add is to say that I think it's not just about consumers starting to um, upgrade their preferences, so taking out their, uh, their first insurance policy or using bank accounts more frequently, but it's also the way in which emerging market companies are combining those propositions with really innovative technology. So we've seen some great examples of uh, banks and insurers who are being willing to expand their offering much more web-based or app-based to suit the needs of the growing emerging consumer. Uh, James, we, we'll start with you for, for the next one. Um, one of the most discussed 
features in, in the market right now is the precipitous collapse in the price of oil. Um, how does that impact emerging markets? Some emerging market economies, of course, are oil exporters, and, and so they're not having a wonderful time. But many others, such as India, are uh, net consumers of oil. Netting all of that off, how does the collapse in the oil price impact the investment case for these markets? Well, it's a, it's a real mixed bag in emerging markets. Um, you know, as you say, you have got countries like Russia, like the Middle East, which you know produce a lot and export a lot of oil. For whom, you know, such low oil prices um, as we're seeing at present are you know a disaster, frankly. Um, and then you've got countries on the other side of it, um, like India, you know, huge growth engines which import a lot of oil to power that engine, um, who actually get a real boost um, from low oil prices. Um, so it's 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 very much a mixed bag. A mixed bag. But what I would what I would point out, a very important point, underline it all, is that you know oil prices have fallen today. You know, as we all know, because global demand um, has you know collapsed um, while the world deals with the virus. Now, in a sense, that's somewhat of a of a bad fall um, in, in the oil price. Um, it's not. You know, we don't have a lower oil price today because oil productivity um, has increased, um, which conversely, you know, which would be would be a much better you know, source of a fall. Um, so that means that it's happening alongside you know, a, a large negative shock for all of other commodities as well and also um, for world trade. And that makes it a much tougher challenge for emerging markets um, than just, you know, an, an, an oil fall um, in isolation. So I think it's I think it is on balance a difficult one for emerging markets. However, it could, you know, set the foundations going forward for those oil importers like India um, who will be able to drive growth forward um, on the other side of this. Hugh, the oil price in its direction is always very much discussed and I know it's often discussed at the presentations that I attend at your firm um, but what do you think is the the uh, net, net impact does this provide a massive boost for uh, those those economies that are net oil importers and can we see those economies perform much better typically a, a big fall in the oil price during a period of economic weakness would be a, a bit of a silver lining but unfortunately Indeed. as James has mentioned you have the case here where uh, countries aren't getting the same benefit as they normally would for lower oil prices because of the, the lockdown on travel and transportation that we're seeing. For me, I think this gets really interesting when you look at a comparison of emerging market equities against emerging market debt. Because I think if you're looking to play uh, lower oil prices, this is typically going to lean you more towards emerging market equities over debt. Uh, because again of the country composition. And so if you think about the, the hard currency issuers, they tend to be much more focused in Latin America um, and in the Gulf regions, especially, whereas the equity core markets tend to be focused in Asia, where you typically see a, a greater weight of net oil importers. So for me, one of the big investment conclusions here is that it's leading me to favor emerging market equities over emerging market debt, given the pressures on the oil price. Andrew, as a as a fund manager in emerging markets, is it does the lower oil price make you um, make you sell out of certain countries or economies or companies, or or is it more nuanced than that? 
Yeah, I think I think it's more nuanced, and I would broadly agree with the comments that both James and Hugh just gave. And you know, as a reminder, most emerging markets they're the net oil and gas importers, so there's there are benefits, assuming we get economic recovery, to, to allow those benefits to flow. Um, also, lower oil prices, you know, ease pressure on inflation, uh, allowing policymakers more flexibility for monetary easing to to cushion growth. Um, and certainly in more of the Asian markets, I think it's only really Malaysia that's a, a significant oil export, and even then it's, it's marginal in terms of its overall oil balance. Um, for those oil-producing nations, things are clearly going to be very different. You know, Many will face significant challenges. And we, when we look at our portfolios today, we've currently got zero exposure to most of those more challenged producers, and we've continued to prefer our oil exposure through Russian energy names, and we've not been significantly reducing our, our Russian position during this, this downturn. And the reason for that, and, and if you look at the case for why we held these names before the, the collapse and all, was you know, Russian stocks were extremely attractively priced. The market was trading at you know six seven times earnings and offering eight percent yield, which was you know one of the highest yields available globally. Um, the country is in a pretty env- uh, enviable position from a, a sovereign debt perspective. You know very little sovereign debt, um, uh, twin cur- uh, twin surpluses in both the current account and the fiscal balance. Um, the country also had considerable FX reserves, um, over $550 billion, equivalent to more than 30% of GDP. And they'd grown a national wealth fund as well in recent years to over 8% of GDP. So when you marry okay. those sort of sovereign and, and macro support factors with the fact that the majority of Russian oil companies are free cash flow positive, even at $20 oil, we think the country is pretty well prepared for a low oil price environment and should ultimately benefit as we eventually emerge into a world of higher prices. Hugh, to, to what extent um, are the fates of emerging market funds and companies, uh, do they continue to be reliant on, on the outlook for China? Or really, has there been a decoupling over the past decade? In my view, those linkages are still very strong, but I think they vary um, in their nature across different countries. So if you take uh, supply chains, for example, then clearly the, the Asian network around South Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, for example, are going to be highly impacted by changes in Chinese manufacturing. If you then compare that to tourism, then I think you get quite a different dynamic because if you look at Thailand, for example, we've seen that China was responsible for over 25% of all foreign tourism receipts last year, a really big driver of uh, Thailand tourism and tourism in Thailand being a very big driver of the overall economy. So I think when trying to assess how the resurgence of China and the bounce back post the virus is going to impact different markets, it's really important to look at the different linkages rather than assuming that all emerging markets will react in the same way. James, China is the, is the story, I suppose, that, that's reached the public consciousness, that the man in the streets consciousness. Very much about you know the China growth story and the progress they make there, and they you know, things are news about Chinese companies winning contracts in in the UK. But do, do the rest of the emerging markets uh, rely on China as a source of growth, as a source of demand, or yeah, sorry. can those countries be can those um, economies produce their own growth at this point? I very much agree with 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 Andrew's um, view um, on this. Um, China is very much, you know, still, you know, at the heart of, of of emerging markets, and there's just no getting away from that. Um, just thinking short term, um, let me say that, you know, while I don't expect China to do a massive stimulus like they did a decade ago to spur, you know, spur on rapid global economic growth, I do think that they'll be, you know, one of the countries that are first in and first out in this crisis, and and will cope well 
economically. And we're already seeing parts of the Chinese economy, you know, normalize um, somewhat. Um, though, of course, you know, we shouldn't get carried away and we shouldn't be surprised if there are more waves of the virus um, to come um, anywhere. And so that will provide some support for emerging uh, markets. And as Andrew says, particularly Asia. Now, Asia actually, uh, and, and you know, certain parts of Asia um, really represent a bright spot um, for us thinking about, you know, the crisis and, 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 and the way out of the crisis. Um, in general, you know, a number of countries such as Korea, Taiwan and Singapore, um, you know, having experienced SARS, um, in the 2000s, you know, were very well prepared for this pandemic. Crucially, they took COVID-19 very seriously. They acted very quickly, powerfully. They knew exactly what policies would work, and they implemented quite sophisticated policies in uh, in some cases. In a sense, it's you know, it's tragic that the West, for one reason or another, wasn't able to learn more from them. But what we're actually, you know, seeing there is, you know, a lot of capability. And I think that those countries in particular, you know, could do well coming out of the crisis. It's difficult now because, you know, we're still in the midst of everything. Um, but when everything comes out um, in the wash and, um, and, and, and we see, you know, which economies are going to kind of move forward on the other side of this, you know, Asia is going to have a lot going for it. Andrew, to what extent is your fund then exposed directly and indirectly to, to China? Is it possible to have an emerging market fund that that doesn't have much exposure or reliance on China. Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a broad theme here, David, and most of my answers that it, it's very much dependent on on each country. Um, every country's got a different situation. Some have clearly more direct trade links to China. You know, they're providing raw materials, natural resources. We know that China is one of the world's you know hungriest consumers of oil, copper, soybeans, and lots of iron ore. Others have significant manufacturing facilities there. They've got supply chain relationships. And then when we look at the, the composition of economies, um, many countries, as the gentlemen have just described, are highly dependent on exports. You know, Taiwan and Korea and even too, with substantial share of those exports going into the Chinese mainland. Other countries, the likes of Brazil, the likes of India, they're typically much more domestic demand oriented. So if you look at their share of exports as a percentage of GDP, we're looking at 15% and 19% respectively. Um, so I think it's difficult to generalize. I think the one thing we can say for sure, however, is that the world needs a stable Chinese economy, given its relevance to so many different industries. Um, and we'll, we'll start uh, with you again, Andrew, on, on, the, on the next point, really, which is uh, the quality of, of governance, both at the individual company level and at the national economy level in emerging markets, is something that I think has put some investors off the asset class over the years. But um, are there signs that governance is getting better at the company level? Are companies more respectful of minority and outside shareholders, in your experience, Andrew? Yeah, I've um, I celebrated my 25th anniversary managing emerging market equities last October. So I've seen uh, quite a substantial shift in, in, um, in a governance environment. And I think many of the reasons, um, there's many reasons for the discount between the two asset classes, but governance clearly has been one of them. And what we've been observing in recent years, it's been a continued improvement, actually, in the governance um, at both an individual company level, and you could cite you know, the better alignment of interests between management and minority investors, uh, better capital efficiency, um, improved commitment to capital discipline, and you know, evidencing and, and more buyback activity and dividends, etc. And I think the drivers of these changes vary. Some argue that it's a, a natural consequence of countries getting wealthier, the standards improving. Others would say it's a, a recognition of the, the rising stewardship and engagement efforts of institutional investors um, like myself and, and my colleagues on the call today. 
I think some of it will also be regulatory driven from a, a governmental level. And we've seen a number of governments across the region, you know, starting to issue governance codes for local corporates to adhere to. And they're issuing stewardship codes for local investors to align themselves to. A number of governments are using the World Bank's ease of doing business indicators as a framework to demonstrate the, the improved efficiency of their economies, trying to make them more attractive and more transparent. And you know, we spent a lot of time questioning what, why, why this is happening. And there's many theories, but my personal theory is that governments around the world recognize that the Chinese business model is evolving. It's shifting towards more domestic consumption, and that changes the external accounts significantly. And we've seen that the Chinese current account surplus diminishing over recent years, moving towards potential um, deficit situation. And I think that's going to imply that China is much more competitive for capital globally, and it's forcing other countries that have perhaps been a bit slow in the game to improve the, the attractiveness of their respective economies to really okay. up their governance standards. James, as a global equity manager, I guess you get you get to see both at the macro level and at the micro individual company level, you get to see how government policies impact uh, companies all over the world and you get to see how company management attitudes impact investment cases all over the world. Have, have you seen um, emerging markets sort of catch up with everybody else? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Andrew. I think he articulates it you know, very well. Um, you know, the basic answer is that it is improving a lot, um, but there's still you know, a long way to go. Um, I'd, I'd probably just add you know, two points on this that I think are extremely interesting um, today. The first is that you know, after 30 or 40 years of thinking that we know exactly what the gold standard for corporate governance is, we're now seriously questioning it in the developed world. Um, is it a board that efficiently maximizes shareholder value or is it a board that balances the interest of shareholders with that of a wider set of stakeholders, including customers, employees and possibly the society at large? So ultimately, what standard um, should EM companies be aspiring to and what will they converge to in the years from here? I think that's an extremely important question looking at the governance and emerging markets um, you know, over the next decade or so. Um, second, I, I, would, I would highlight you know, a category of emerging market companies you know, from this perspective. And those are the ones where you know, perhaps the governance today is not great, but it could be improved possibly with the help of engagement um, from you know, fund managers. Um, in particular, take you know, small and mid-cap emerging market companies, you know, first generation family run um, businesses who've built, you know, the EM success story over the past 20, 30 years. Now, many of those um, of those businesses are handing, are being handed over to, you know, the next generation who are in the 30s, in the 40s, you know, very different to their parents. Um, they've perhaps been educated you know, in the US, in the UK, lived and worked there and have been very much influenced by those experiences. Now, they've got a progressive outlook on governance um, and other important strategic issues you know, like technology. And they represent you know, the vanguard of corporate governance in emerging markets. I've, I've, now, in my view, these kinds of investment opportunities are very, very interesting from a governance perspective. Uh, Hugh, have you seen, uh, we'll give you the last word on this topic. Have you, have you seen at the, at the government level, has um, policymakers, uh, finance ministers, uh, central bank officials, have they upped their game in, in recent years? Um, have they become more uh, aware of um, best practice uh, in terms of economics and markets? 
I think that's fair, yes, broadly. But I, I think as a couple of the previous points have highlighted, you still have to differentiate very carefully between um, improving governance at the sovereign level and improving governance at the corporate level. Because we see many examples where you get one right but the other wrong, and then clearly that's not going to um, be a, a strong investment case. I, I mean, I think more broadly, one point I'd highlight here is that whilst, yes, the quality of governance is improving, there are going to be many other factors as well that are going to um, really justify the discount that we're seeing between emerging markets and developed. And so whilst that gap has been closing over the past few decades, I think that there are many other factors that justify why that still remains fairly wide today. Thank you. Uh, and thank you all for joining me today, Andrew, James and Hugh. Tune in next week for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.